following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, we are in this series, uh, week four of the series we're doing. And uh, to catch you up, if you're, if you're just visiting or new today, it's a series called Here We Stand. And uh, we're doing this series marking the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, what is called the Protestant Reformation, uh, which is largely centering around a person that we've been getting to know quite well over these last few weeks, a guy called Martin Luther, and learning about his life and his journey. And it was a time when some of the most central doctrines of the church and the Christian faith were recovered and reclaimed and recalibrated. And so we've been looking at these five solars. Word solar just means alone or only. And we've been looking at these, these truths, uh, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. And this morning we come to look at sola fide, faith alone. So to catch you up on the series, just again, get the picture of what's going on here. We've got a brief video to play on the Reformation and the five solars. Let's watch the screen. All right, so we called the series here, We Stand, kind of taking after that quote from Luther where he literally staked his life on these claims, centrality of Christ, centrality of Scripture and grace and so on, and said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. One of his more uh, famous quotes. So today we are looking at sola fide, the word fide, uh, one of the more obscure words maybe in the series, but just the Latin word for faith. So faith alone. We've looked at Scripture alone, we've looked at Christ alone, grace alone, and now faith alone. And to get us into this topic, I want to take us back to the 16th century. You never knew you'd be learning so much medieval history, did you, in church? Back to the 16th century, back to Germany, uh, back to the little town of Wittenberg. Uh, and in the town of Wittenberg, there was a particular monastery. And in this monastery, there was a tower. And in that tower... There was a small little room that had been converted into a study. And in that little room, there sat a monk named Martin Luther. And this is where Luther lived, in this monastery. And he'd converted this little room into his study. And this room was where he sat preparing his lectures and his teaching for the university where he taught, where he taught theology. And so on this particular day, and, and we know this story, by the way, because Luther tells it in one of his books. On this particular day, Luther was poring over Scripture. He was preparing a set of lectures for his theology course. He was preparing for his students. And he was agonizing over this one verse in the Bible, this one particular verse that was really anguishing him. And I want to look at it this morning because it became such a pivotal verse for Luther. Uh, it became such a pivotal verse for the whole Reformation. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. So I want to start there. Have a look at this verse. And here's what Luther was reading, uh, not in English, but this is what our English translations say. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that's a, that's a nice sounding verse, and it, it sounds wonderful, but Luther talks about how he hated that verse. He hated it because of what he thought that verse said about God. Because like most other scholars of his day, when Luther looked at that phrase, the righteousness of God, he interpreted it in a particular way. And he interpreted the righteousness of God to be equivalent to the holiness of God. 
So he thought the righteousness of God is God's holiness or God's justice or God's moral perfection, his, his perfectly righteous character that no sinner, no person could ever possibly measure up to. And so for Luther, for the righteousness of God to be revealed basically meant for God's judgment to be revealed, that God revealed his own righteousness and therefore he punished our unrighteousness. For God's righteousness to be revealed, Luther thought, meant that he was going to clobber us over the head with his own judgment and his own condemnation that God was going to punish us and destroy us and pour out his wrath upon us. And so when Luther read this verse, he hated what he thought it said about the kind of God that God was. He felt like this verse depicted God as this mean-spirited God, this nasty deity, this kind of vindictive, punishing God who just couldn't wait for an opportunity to beat us up, couldn't wait for an opportunity to pour out His wrath upon us. That's just who God was. And Luther hated that God. He hated that view of God, and he hated how it made him feel because he was terrified of that God. That's the only God Luther knew at this point in his life. This is the God that he'd grown up knowing. This is the God that got him into the monastery. The, the, the event that led Luther to become a monk was a thunderstorm. He was caught in a thunderstorm. He was caught in a lightning storm, and he thought he was going to be struck by lightning, and he prayed to St. Anne to save him, and he vowed that if he was saved, he'd become a monk, and he, he was spared, and so he became a monk, and, and it was that kind of thing that drove him into the monastery and this fear of God, and he just felt like God was always angry at him, and he spent his life trying desperately to see what he could do to appease God, to placate the wrath of this God before whom he cowered in fear. And so he would try penance, and he would try the sacraments, and, and he would try confession and do all of these things. Luther was constantly confessing his sins. Like all the time, he would every every inclination of his heart, every impure thought, he'd rush off and confess to another monk. He had a very sensitive conscience. In fact, apparently, one of the monks in the monastery once sent Luther away and told him to come back once he'd committed a sin that was actually worth confessing. He had a very very sensitive conscience, Luther, and he was always cowering before God, always terrified, always fearful of God's wrath. And so, when he read this verse. In Romans 1.17, it just reinforced that idea to him that God was a punishing, vindictive, capricious kind of deity, and Luther needed to spend his life trying to figure out how he could somehow appease this, this God. But on this particular day, Luther was reading this verse, and he suddenly had a burst of insight into what that verse really means. And he describes it in, in one of his books. He says this, I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. <laughs> and that was Luther. That, that was like the inner reformation that happened in his heart. Before all of the external reformation happened, Luther had this sense of being born again again. The sense of Suddenly his love for God was kindled back into flame by what he finally saw this verse to mean. Because what he realized, and it came out of his study of this text, this verse, what he realized is the righteousness of God is not just this thing that God has in himself. It's something he shares with us. The righteousness of God is something that he bestows upon us 
graciously. And so for the righteousness of God to be revealed it is not for God's judgment and punishment and wrath to be poured out. Luther saw it as the righteousness of God being revealed means that initiative that God takes to bestow his righteousness on us, even though we're unworthy and hopeless sinners. It's this incredibly gracious act where God allows us to share in the righteousness of Jesus. That's what it means for God's righteousness to be revealed. And so all of a sudden for Luther, this verse shifted from being a verse that brought condemnation and death to a verse that brought life and freedom and hope. And his view of God shifted from being this vindictive and nasty creature to being a God who was unbelievably gracious that he would invite us to share in his own righteousness through Jesus. That verse was absolutely pivotal in Luther's life. And the reason I start with that story this morning, because I think it gives us a good starting point to think about sola fide, faith alone. Because if you ask the question in this verse, how do we take hold of that righteousness? How do we grasp this righteousness of God? The answer that comes through loud and clear is by faith. It's by faith. I mean, Paul, who's writing this letter, says it. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In other words, it's all about faith from beginning to end. This is the difference between sola gratia that we looked at last week, grace alone, and sola fide. Grace alone is God's initiative in saving us and giving us the gift of his righteousness and sending Jesus this incredible grace, this gift that God has given. Sola fide, faith alone, is our response to the gift. Sola fide is how we can receive this gift of righteousness into our lives, how we can open our arms and receive it, how we can apply it, how we can appropriate the grace of God in our lives. And the answer is by faith and by faith alone. The doorway through which we've got to walk in order to access and share in the righteousness of Christ is the doorway of faith, faith alone, which makes faith an incredibly important topic in Christian life and theology. So I want to explore with you, what is faith? What is biblical faith? We've all got an idea maybe of what faith is and how faith works, but let's press into this. What is faith? The answer is not really found in that verse because Paul doesn't unpack it there. He just talks about how important faith is. If we want to know what faith is, we've got to press on a little bit in the book of Romans through to chapter 3. So flick over a couple of pages, Romans chapter 3, and down in verse 22, Paul explains it a little bit further. He says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe. Now, if you look at the text there, the words faith and believe are the same Greek word. Okay, so faith and belief in the New Testament, they're often used interchangeably. They both come back to the same word. But the really important phrase in that verse I want you to catch is the phrase faith in Jesus Christ. That's the key. That's the heart of it. Faith in Jesus Christ. Because the thing with faith, often when we start thinking about having faith, we, we, we look inside our own hearts, don't we? And we ask the question, well, how, how much faith do I have? How strong is my faith? How strong is your faith? How, is you, do you have a lot of faith? Or, is, or do you feel like your faith is very weak? And if we feel like our faith is very weak, then maybe we pray to God and we say, God, would you grant me more faith? Would you help me to have a stronger faith? And what we're doing, when we, I mean, those are good prayers to pray. We should ask God for more faith and, and to enlarge our faith. But very often when we talk about faith, all of our focus goes onto the subject of faith, which is ourselves. A lot of our focus goes onto 
us and how much faith I've got and how much faith I need to have and how much faith I should have. And we're very focused on the subject of faith. But in this verse, the focus is not on the subject of faith. It is on the object of faith, who is Jesus. The focus of Scripture is on who your faith is in. Faith always needs an object. Faith always needs to be in something. It always needs to be in someone. It's never just faith. Faith doesn't exist by itself. Faith is not a thing by itself. It cannot be. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. You can't just talk about, I've got faith. No, no, it has to be faith in something or someone. And the proper object of our faith is in Jesus Christ. So really, the important thing with faith is not how great your faith is. It's how great your God is, right? Because he's the one that your faith is in. The really important question is not how big is my faith, it's how big is my God. It's not how strong is my faith, it's how strong is Jesus. Because He's the one whom our faith is grounded in, anchored in, earthed in. We've got to keep our focus on the object of faith, who is Christ. Right? So far, so good. So, faith in Jesus Christ. What does it mean then to have faith in Jesus Christ? To unpack that, I want to come to another prominent figure in church history, someone who lived a lot later than Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, 19th century Baptist preacher and theologian. And Spurgeon, I think, does the best job of unpacking what faith looks like and breaking it down for us. And in a really simple way, he says, biblical faith, true faith, involves three elements, three things. Let me just walk you through it. Firstly, he says, faith involves knowledge. You cannot have faith in the God whom you do not know. Right, simple enough. If we're going to have faith, we need to know about God and we need to know the gospel. We need to know the facts of the gospel. We need to know that Christ has died for our sins, that he's been raised again, that he is coming again. We need to know these things. And that might seem blindingly obvious to us. But remember again, in Luther's day, in the medieval times, knowledge was power. And many of the common people were kept from knowing these things because they couldn't read Scripture and these things were not properly taught to them. So the first step is simply to know the truth uh, that leads us into faith. We've got to have knowledge. And then Spurgeon says, it's not enough to have knowledge. You also have to have belief. And belief is where the information in your head gets poured into your heart. So it moves from just being this intellectual knowledge, I know these facts about God, or I know these facts about Jesus, and it, and it becomes lodged in your heart as a conviction that you hold dear. So last week we said the words of the Apostles' Creed. And that could be just speaking these words that affirm things that Christians in general believe. And that would be knowledge. But I hope that as we said those words... We were saying words that we truly believe. We are making these affirmations of faith, and we're saying these truths, they affect us at a heart level. This is not just stuff in my head. These are deep convictions that have become lodged in my heart. They've become lodged in my soul. They affect me deeply, emotionally, spiritually. They've gotten into my bones. To believe means to really be apprehended by these truths. We're captured by these truths. They mean the world to us. That's belief. So we've got to have knowledge, we've got to have belief, and then Spurgeon says the final element, and this is really the most important one, is trust. We've got to have trust 
in Jesus, trusting our lives to Jesus. Not enough just to have knowledge, not enough just to know information about Jesus, not even enough just to have belief. We ultimately, if we're going to be people of faith, we need to place our lives into the hands of Jesus in trust. The book of James says that the demons believe there is one God and they shudder. The demons have got knowledge. The demons of hell have got belief in the sense that they are affected by these truths too. I mean, the demons of hell, they know the gospel. They know Jesus is the son of God and they shudder. They're deeply affected by those truths, but they don't have faith, do they? Why? Because they don't have this final element. They don't have trust. They don't trust Jesus. They despise Jesus. But we are called to be people who move from knowledge to belief to trust. And let me try and explain what trust looks like. When our son Ezra was a bit younger, when my back was a bit stronger, I used to scoop him up in my arms and throw him up in the air and occasionally catch him. And, and, I, and I loved doing it when he wasn't expecting it. And so I was doing something else and I'd just grab him and chuck him as high as I could. And as he watched his face as he goes up, there would be this look of absolute terror that comes across his face. His face. Like, what is happening to me? A minute ago, I was playing in the sandpit. Now I'm in the air and no one is holding me. This is a disaster. And then as he came down and I grabbed him in my arms and brought him to the ground, that look of terror would turn into a look of delight. And he'd realize, oh, dad's got me. This was a game. You know, I thought it was a disaster. This is a game. I've got it now. And I'd put him down. And then the first thing he'd want to do is for me to lift him up again. And because now he knows, you know, now he, now he believes, now he trusts that I really am good and that I'm going to look after him. And so he would willingly then run back into my arms for another round. And that's kind of like what trust is. You know, it's not, it's not just standing at a distance, is it, and saying, well, no, I, I, I trust you, God. It's not just sitting in church or standing in church and singing these songs about how we trust God. We can say these words. Uh, we could recite the creeds. We could even pray a prayer that says, I trust you, God. But trust is more than that, isn't it? It is really running into the arms of our Heavenly Father. And it's allowing the full weight of our lives to rest upon Him. And it's really allowing Him to pick us up and throw us in the air if He wants to. Because... We know and we believe and we trust that he will catch us again. Here's the way that Luther describes faith. Bringing together all these elements. Faith is a free surrender and a joyous wager on the unseen, unknown, untested goodness of God. I love that because there is an element to which God is unknown, unseen, untested. I mean, we don't, you don't exactly know what's going to happen when you place your life into the hands of the living God, do you? you don't quite, he might throw you up in the air. You know, who knows where he may take you and what he might do and, and, and what he might ask of you and where he might lead you. We don't know. Ultimately, there is a mystery to God and there is a mystery to our faith. But faith is saying, I freely surrender my life to you, God. Faith is us placing the wager of our lives on the goodness of God. It's wagering our lives, our very lives, on the fact that God is fundamentally good. Because if he's not good, there's no way we should be putting our trust in him, right? I mean, if I'm not a good father, there's no way Ezra should be trusting me. Who knows what might happen? If God is not good, we should be running for our lives in fear. But if God is good, we can run into his arms, knowing that he will always catch us, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he is for us. And so faith involves an individual person 
coming to a point where they say, God, I'm wagering my life on your goodness. I'm all in. I'm going all in, God, on you. I'm not holding a few chips back. I'm not, I'm, I'm not giving myself a safety net. I'm not giving myself an escape clause. I'm not giving myself an easy out. I'm all in, God. All chips are on the table. I'm wagering my very life on the fact that you are good. That is faith. And so it's the surrender. It is the totality of our lives being placed into the hands of Jesus. And many of you have done this. Many of you look around the room. Many of you have done this. You've gotten to a point in your life, maybe it's been over a period of time, and you've come to this place of faith. And you've seen and you know and you believe all that God has done for you, and you've responded in faith, and you've responded by placing your hands into the hands of Jesus and trusting Him with your life. Some of you may never have done that. Some of you, as you sit here this morning, may never have taken that step, and today God is prompting your heart and saying, are you willing to take that final step of trust? Maybe you've got the knowledge. Maybe you've been attending church for a while. Maybe it's even become belief, and and you are moved by the truths of the gospel. And maybe you've assumed that that's enough because you're affected by them and you believe these things. And God would say to you this morning, there's a final step for you to take. And it's that step of trust. You need to run into my arms. You need to take that wager. You have not yet placed the wager of your life on my goodness. And I'm calling you to do that this morning. Maybe God is calling you to take that final step this morning and run into the arms of your loving heavenly father. Wagering your life on his goodness. You know, the most amazing thing about faith, I think, is that even our faith is a gift from God. And this is extraordinary, I think. Even our faith. Because you think about, like, it's very easy. I don't know whether this is your thought process as you're listening this morning, but it is very easy for all of this to start sounding like another version of the point system that we looked at last week. And we tried to dismantle that last week and say, this is a futile effort ever trying to earn points with God. And yet, as you listen this morning, you can be forgiven for thinking, well, hang on, now we're talking about, I've got to have knowledge. And we're talking about, I've got to have belief. And I've got to have trust. And aren't we just back to another version of the same thing? Isn't this just the point system in disguise? Now it's back to my effort, my merit, and all these things I've got to do. And the reformers would say an emphatic, no, nine. It's not that. It is not our effort at all because of this fact. Even our faith is a gift of God. You see, without, without God's intervention, without God's grace in our lives, we are so dead in our sins, we can't even respond in faith. We are so hopelessly lost. I mean, Ephesians 2 says you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead people can't resurrect themselves. Dead people cannot even open their eyes. Dead people can't even hold out their hands to receive new life. We're dead. We are dead, spiritually speaking. But here is the incredible grace of God, that God loves us so much that He has given every human person the capacity to respond in faith. He has given us this gift of grace where we have the ability and the capacity by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, to respond to him in faith, that God has placed that capacity in your heart. Even that capacity to respond comes from him. And that's a gift God gives every human person so that we all equally have this ability to respond in faith, to respond in trust. But we've got to remember, even that 
is a gift of God's grace. That's why Romans 1.17 says it is all faith from first to last, from beginning to end. The only reason we can even talk about faith this morning, talk about the opportunity, and you might even be thinking about this, is because of the prior grace of God that has opened your heart to the point where you can believe, you can trust, you can exercise faith. So all of this really is wrapped up in the grace of God. God gives us the capacity. Even our faith is a gift of God. And many of you here have exercised that faith. You've placed your faith in Christ at one time. But, you know, I think there is a difference between being saved through faith and really living by faith, would you say? And you think back to Romans 1.17, and Paul finishes that verse with that quote from the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. It doesn't say the righteous will be saved by faith, although that's true, but it's not just being saved by faith. God wants us to live by faith. And I think for a lot of Christians, faith is kind of that thing that we had when we first became a Christian. And I place my faith in Jesus. And after then, we don't really know what to do with it. We don't really know how faith kind of affects our lives. And yet faith is supposed to be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. Faith is supposed to be the hallmark of the Christian life and and the Christian experience that we are above all to be people who live by faith through every season of our lives. I think God has been teaching me this year a lot about what it means to live by faith. And not just to be saved by faith. This is a lesson that's it's personal to me. It's a lesson I needed to learn. Uh, many of you know I had a back injury several months ago. I did something on a Saturday, probably throwing Israel up in the air too many times. And on the Sunday morning, I woke up and I remember being down here on that Sunday and just the searing pain in my back and all down my leg. It was this horrible, debilitating pain and I hoped it would go away. I tried physio and the pain just set in. It just didn't get any better at all. And there were some mornings I remember taking several minutes to try and find a position that I could maneuver myself out of bed to try and minimize the pain, try and avoid that lightning pain shooting down my leg. It was a horrible three and a half months. And I'm grateful for the fact that after that I could have finally surgery, fairly minor surgery, and it sorted out the issue, and I'm pain-free. And I look back at that time, and I tell you one thing it does is gives me empathy for people that live with chronic pain because it is so debilitating. You know, some of you know, it's, it's just you feel like you're half living. You, so much of your mental and emotional energy just goes into fighting the pain. But I think one of the things God was doing in my life during that time was teaching me about faith, was teaching me a lesson about faith. Because I had this assumption that when I went through times of suffering, that God was going to be really close to me and I would have the special sense of his presence and I'd be overwhelmed with a sense of kind of being wrapped in his arms and I'd almost be lifted up to this higher plane of communion with Christ because he's with me in my sufferings and I have this great sense of solidarity with him in my sufferings and I I, you know I, I preach that stuff I believe that stuff but what I experienced was it was hard to pray it was hard to read the bible sometimes it was hard to come to church and I'm the pastor that's a bit of a worry. But it was tough, you know, and there were many, many times when God just seemed a billion miles away. Couldn't sense his presence at all. And I've read Philip Yancey. I've read C.S. Lewis. I know what these guys say. You know, as Lewis talks about God shouts to us in our pain, but I didn't hear him. I didn't hear his voice. God, for a lot of that time, seemed very, very distant because I was sore and I was tired and I was frustrated, and God just seemed a long, long way away. But I think now 
as I look back, what God was teaching me was the importance of living and walking by faith in those times. I thought that I had faith. I thought I trusted in God. And I think the first thing you realize when things are stripped away from you in life is you realize what kind of faith you've really got. And from there, God graciously took me and, and helped me, I think, grow in this, in this area and taught me to live in a way that was beyond just what I was sensing and experiencing and feeling and whether or not I had this emotional experience of his presence. And he called me to, to base my life on something more than that, the assurance that he is with me regardless of how I'm feeling at the time. There was a verse in 2 Corinthians 12 that became really important to me through that time. It's the passage where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. And I resonated with that because there were days I literally felt like I had a thorn in my flesh. Maybe Paul struggled with back pain. I don't know. Um, that's not good exegesis. But anyway. But, you know, Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh and he cries out to God to take it away. He cries out three times for God to take this away. And Jesus responds to him. And some of you know that, that, that the words Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And I clung on to those words. I didn't always feel them, and I don't completely understand what they mean. But I think God pressed those words into my heart during that time. And I found myself saying over and over again, your grace is sufficient for me. Even times when I felt like those words bounced off the ceiling, and I didn't really feel the weight of them, but I just kept saying them to myself, your grace is sufficient for me. I know this to be true. I believe this to be true. I trust this is true. Even though I, everything within me kind of screams the opposite. But God was teaching me about faith and living by faith. And I, I don't mean to suggest that I'm some great pillar of faith because I feel like I'm still a child in my faith. But I'm stumbling forward just like you are and figuring out what does it mean to live by faith? You know, times we can't sense God, feel God, apprehend God. We feel like we kind of conclude that he must be distant. Maybe it's exactly those times God is building faith into your life. He's taking a few things away so that you can experience what real faith looks like and what faith means maybe some of you are struggling today and, and God seems like he's a long long way away but God's reminding you hey I'm calling you to trust I'm calling you to live by faith beyond what your eyes can see beyond what your senses can perceive and it's not just about times we struggle is it it's about some of you may be in a situation where you're thinking about where things are heading next year and there's uncertainty around your future and there's that unknown about what's coming down the track. And that creates anxiety and that creates a sense of apprehension around that. And some of you are at this transitional stage, like you're at a crossroads in life. Maybe you've got a sense that God is calling you into something. Maybe there's a sense of something new, a new season that's coming. And God is saying to you, do you trust me? You know, like you, you sing these songs in church and you read these passages in your Bible, but do you really trust me? This, this next season in your life is going to be a season where God teaches you what it means to really live by faith to say, I'm all in. I've been holding something back, you know. I've been giving myself an escape clause, but now God's saying, are you really willing to wager your life on the fact that I'm good? Are you willing to wager your future on the fact that I am good? Are you willing to place all of your weight on me? Are you willing to really run into my arms completely, knowing that I am good, and I'm going to catch you, and I'm going to never let you fall? That is the faith that God is requiring of you, and by His grace, he is going to grant you that faith. Because remember, it's not the size of your faith. It's the size of your God. And maybe if you feel this morning like your faith is weak, maybe it's your view of God that needs to change. Maybe the problem is not with your faith itself. It's that your view of God is too small. Your view of Jesus has become impoverished. 
and your view of what he is and who he is has just become shrunken down. And this morning is a, is a moment to say, I want to recover this huge view of who God is, my loving Father who is going to be there for me every single time. Doesn't mean he's always going to fix every problem. Doesn't mean he's going to solve everything. There will be trials and there will be difficulties in life and many of them will be really hard and some of them will be over long, long seasons of life. But through it all, God is faithful and through it all, God is good. And he's asking you this morning, do you trust me? Do you really trust me? Are you really willing to be a person of faith? So I pray, church family, that we become people where this rallying call, sola fide, really becomes who we are. That it's not just another solar that we rattle off, but it really becomes the mark of our lives, that we would become people who live by faith from beginning to end, as the Bible says, from first to last, in every season of life, may we be people of faith, people who say, I'm all in on the goodness of God. I'm trusting God with everything. May we as a church become a church of faith, a church of sola fide, a church that's willing to step into the things that God's calling us to step into and take those opportunities and and, and move forward in obedience, sometimes in sacrifice to what God may be calling us to. May we be people of faith as a community. And may we come back and remember that our faith is always in Jesus Christ, never just in itself and certainly not in us. It is always faith in Jesus Christ, and it's always for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for all those here who feel like their faith is weak. And I pray now, God, that you would remind them gently and graciously that it's not really about their faith. It's about you, and you are the unchanging God. You are so dependable. You are so reliable. You are so unchanging and you are so committed to us that we really can trust you with everything. Lord, I pray for those this morning that are struggling to have that faith. Like the person in in Scripture, Jesus, that you uh, encountered who said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And we feel like that, Jesus. We feel like, yes, I have faith, but oh, I just don't have enough faith. And Jesus, would you just come alongside us? And would you give us a bigger picture of who you are as our Father, as our provider, as our friend? Lord, would you help us to know this morning at a deeper level than we've ever really known and believed that we can trust you? In those areas of our life, Father, where we're holding back, those areas of our life where we're not really living by faith, we're still just living by sight. We're still just living by what our circumstances dictate or what we can measure or account for or plan for, or what our senses tell us. But God, would you call us to lift up our eyes and look to you, look to you, Jesus, and to be able to say, God, I trust you. I trust you with everything. Whatever that means, Lord, you know what it means for every person in this room this morning. You know the situations, you know the stories, you know the challenges. Father, would you just minister to us and so a fresh faith into each of our hearts. And we thank you, God, that even our faith is a gift of your grace, and we are so grateful to you for that. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit 
www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.